Good morning, uh, Your Excellency, Dr. Ambassador Farid Yassin, Ambassador of Iraq to the United States of America, friend and former Iraqi Minister of Health and head of the Iraqi Red Crescent, Dr. Saeed Haki, who's with us. Good morning. Members of the diplomatic community, National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations, board members, and International Advisory Committee members, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you also to the National Council's staff and interns for your efforts and assistance behind the scenes in making this event possible. Today's program, I want to remind you, is generously co-sponsored by the Ronald Reagan Building and International Trade Center, operated by the Trade Center Management Associates, TCMA, a Drew company. For over a decade, the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations has proudly partnered with TCMA and the Ronald Reagan Building to offer a variety of international and educational public affairs programs, conferences, annual conferences, and seminars. We are delighted once again to partner with them this morning. For those of you visiting this incredible building, and just indulge me for a moment, for the first time, and for those of you who have visited before, but maybe not noticed everything here, I would point out to you that you are currently in the largest structure in Washington, D.C. The Ronald Reagan Building and International Trade Center is 3.1 million, has 3.1 million square feet, is the first and only federal building dedicated to both government and private use. It is owned by the U.S. General Service Administration of the U.S. government and operated, operated of course, by the, by the Drew Company. The mandate of this building by Congress is for this building to bring together the country's best public and private resources to create a national forum for the advancement of trade and understanding. Designated as the official World Trade Center, Washington, D.C., this massive structure houses state-of-the-art conference and event centers, executive office space, retail, dining, four U.S. government agencies, I believe, and a plethora of community entertainment and programming. Today is testament to this. Thank you, TCMA, to Andrew in the back, Hosai, Ben, Jan, Daphne, uh, and the great team of your professionals uh, for making today's discussion uh, possible. I just want to bring, uh, uh, want to note and bring apologies and warm wishes from Dr. Anthony, uh, my president and CEO, uh, who accidentally uh, stepped on a piece of glass, had emergency surgery, He's, and if you know Dr. Anthony, you know there's no need to worry. He's doing quite well and recovering marvelously and quickly. Um, and he, he would remind us all that, uh, and I quote him always, that uh, the marvels of modern medicine never cease to amaze. So um, uh, in Dr. Anthony's absence, I just want to point out that we're joined this morning by National Council Senior International Affairs Fellow, uh, Colonel Mr. David DeRoche. Uh, Dave teaches at the National Defense University's Center uh, for Near East and South Asia Strategic Studies, an important project of the United States Department of Defense. Of course, Dave is speaking to us this morning uh, in a personal capacity, not as an official representative of the U.S. government. Um, thanks, Dave, for, for joining us. Our program today will first feature uh, keynote remarks from our special guest, his excellent the ambassador. Uh, then Colonel DeRoche will offer some short commentary. Finally, we'll open up the floor uh, for a moderated discussion and question and answer session. If you've never been to one of our events before, ladies and gentlemen, we only accept questions, of course, uh, for decorum purposes uh, on note cards. You have one at your place. Feel free to just write your question on a note card, raise your hand, and one of our staff um, will collect it and bring it to the front. Um, 
I'd also point out that there is a map uh, printed for you of, of Iraq and the neighborhood, uh, the Arab region and the Iraqis' neighbors, um, on the uh, flyer that was given to you this morning. So feel free to refer to that uh, this morning as well for, for context and understanding. The National Council was very fortunate to host Ambassador Yassin for a similar discussion back in July of last year. The overwhelming turnout and response and attendance moved us to book a bigger space and look for larger space. So of course we turned to the Ronald Reagan Building International Trade Center. It's really incredible uh, to think what's happened in Iraq, the Arab region, and the Middle East in the past seven months. The nature and pace of developments should be humbling for everyone and especially those in the U.S. diplomatic, military, and political communities. For the sake of context and introductory remarks, let us just step back and consider events that have dominated the narrative and headlines in the United States regarding Iraq since the ambassador joined the National Council for that discussion in July of 2019. One, the Trump administration has continued its maximum pressure campaign on Iraq's neighbor, Iran, which resulted in the United States' spring 2018 unilateral withdrawal from the 2015 multilateral joint comprehensive plan of action known also as JCPOA. Actions taken by the United States have included designating the Islamic Revolutionary Guard, Quds Force, as a foreign terrorist organization, applying stringent sanctions on any country trading with Iran, and deploying additional U.S. military assets to the region. Tensions have increased significantly since May 2019 as Iran and Iran-linked forces have apparently responded by attacking and seizing commercial ships, posing threats to U.S. forces and interests, including downing a U.S. unmanned aerial vehicle, causing destruction to critical infrastructure in the Arab states of the Gulf, and reducing compliance with the provisions of the JCPOA. And further holiday excitement. Uh, you just can't make this stuff up here. Uh, on 27th of December, a rocket attack on a base near Kirkuk in northern Iraq killed a U.S. contractor and wounded four U.S. service members and two Iraqi service members, Allah Hermu. Two days later, the United States launched a retaliatory airstrikes on five facilities, three in Iraq, two in Syria, used by Iran-backed Iraqi armed group Qatab Hezbollah, a U.S.-designated foreign terrorist organization to which the United States attributed the December 27th and other attacks. On 31st of December, Supporters of Khatib Hezbollah and other Iran-backed militias surrounded the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, forced their way briefly into the compound, and set some buildings on fire. Thank God no one was harmed. President Trump tweeted that Iran, which, quote, orchestrated the attack, would be fully held responsible for lives lost or damaged incurred at any of our facilities. They will pay a, in big caps, a big price, unquote. On January 2nd, 2020, the U.S. Department of Defense announced in a statement that the U.S. military had killed Quds Force Commander Major General Qasem Soleimani in, quote, a defensive action, unquote. The statement cited Soleimani's responsibility for the deaths of hundreds of Americans and coalition service members and his approval of the embassy blockade in Baghdad and also asserted that he was, quote, actively developing plans to attack American diplomats and service members in Iraq and throughout the region, unquote. According to subsequent statements, media reports, Soleimani was killed in a U.S. drone strike while leaving Baghdad International Airport early in that morning. Uh, Khatib Hezbollah, founder and Iraqi Popular Mobilization Forces leader Abu Mahdi al-Muhandi and other Iranian and Iraqi figures were also killed in the strike. Then, 
on January the 8th in a military operation codenamed Operation Martyr Soleimani, Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps launched numerous, numerous ballistic attacks at the Ain al-Assad Air Base in Al-Ambar Governorate in western Iraq, as well as another air base in Erbil in the Kurdistan region. No U.S. service members were reported killed in the strikes. However, at least 110 Americans suffered brain injuries in the rocket assault. At the same time, a majority in Iraq's parliament, whether binding or non-binding, for formally demanded the departure of U.S. and other foreign armed forces from Iraq. All the while, Iraq has been experiencing ongoing protests and demonstrations since October of 2019. They have resulted in the resignation of Prime Minister Abdul Abdul Mahdi and the deaths of more than 600 Iraqis with more than 20,000 Iraqis wounded during this period of unrest. On February 1, Iraqi President Barham Saleh signed a decree appointing a new interim Prime Minister, Mohammad Alawi, before elections can be organized under a new election law passed in December. Efforts to assemble the new government remain ongoing, and I'm sure the ambassadors can update you about something that just happened recently today. Most recently, Iraq's neighbor Iran has been grappling with coronavirus, as well as Iraq and the entire world. Today, more than 5,000 American soldiers remain pre-positioned in Iraq across various military installations. Since Soleimani's death in January, Canada and Germany have announced the withdrawal of some of their training forces from Iraq. Regionally, recent additional deployments have added approximately 10,000 U.S. military personnel, and Dave can talk about this, to a baseline now between 60 to 80,000 pre-positioned United States servicemen and women uh, in and around Iraq and the GCC countries. Ladies and gentlemen, now to help us make sense uh, of dynamics in Iraq, in the region, and the state of Iraq-United States relations, we turn this morning to His Excellency Dr. Farid Yassin, who has served as Iraq's ambassador to the United States since November of 2016. Ambassador Yassin joined Iraq's Ministry of Foreign Affairs in July of 2004 and had previously served as the ministry's Department of Public, at the head of the ministry's Department of Policy Planning as diplomatic advisor to Deputy President at the time, Abdul Abd al-Mahdi, and prior to his posting here in the United States as Iraq's ambassador to France. Educated in, educated in Iraq, Switzerland, and the United States, Ambassador was initially trained as a physicist and carried out research at leading universities in Europe and the United States before be becoming involved in political activism and human rights advocacy. The Ambassador has worked and consulted for various think tank startups, the United Nations, um, and he's also a member of the American Physical Society and International Institute for Strategic Studies. In 2016, he was awarded the Robert and Joanne Bendison Public Diplomacy Award at Tufts University and was made Commander of France's National Order of the Legion of Honor. In addition to his numerous accolades, the ambassador founded the Center for the Disappeared, an organization dedicated to remembering victims under Saddam Hussein's rule who were taken by security forces and never seen again. Your Excellency, Thank you so much again for taking your time to be with here this, with us this morning from everyone at the National Council. Welcome back, sir. And we are lucky to be able to hear from you and learn from you today. Ambassador, doctor, the floor is yours. Um, 
Uh, thank you, Pat. Um, uh, thank you for inviting me. Um, best wishes to Dr. Anthony. Thank you all for coming uh, in such great numbers. But the truth is, you left me very little to say. <laughs> um, so um, I've been Iraq's ambassador to the United States uh, for about three years now. Um, and it's, it's a job that is quite unique uh, because uh, of the uh, old and important relationship we have with the United States. Um, the United States got, as you know, heavily engaged in Iraq, not only in 2003, but earlier on in 1991, in the wake of the, uh, uh, of the liberation of Kuwait. And a lot of people, uh, pundits, uh, academics, uh, have even some very senior diplomats have called the um, invasion of Kuwait and of Iraq in 2003 and the subsequent political process uh, the United States' biggest uh, political blunder or diplomatic blunder. I actually am of the belief that the, the way the United States ended the war in 1991 was its biggest political blunder, and I can return to that if you want uh, later on. But as a result of all of this history, uh, we are, uh, because of history, linked to the United States, uh, but also because of history and also geography, and geography is not something you can change. We are linked to our neighboring countries, uh, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Iran, uh, Syria, and Jordan. Uh, with Iran, we have 1,400 uh, kilometers of common borders. We have tributaries that come into the Tigris that originate in Iran. Um, so, uh, in a sense, to paraphrase one of our m major political leaders, uh, Iraq has to maintain excellent relationships with both the axis of evil and the great Satan. And <laughs> it's not funny. <laughs> it's actually quite difficult, especially when you have tensions between the United States and Iran. And over the last uh, 10, 15 years, uh, Iraq has always been of the opinion that we should try to bring calm and uh, reduce tensions in the region. Uh, at the time, my uh, uh, still current boss, uh, Prime Minister uh, uh, Abdel Mahdi, but at the time he was Deputy President, used to say that what the Iranians and the Americans need is a Kissinger moment, referring to uh, Dr. Kissinger's historic trip to, uh, to China that actually changed uh, the history of the second part of the, of the, of the 20th century and the 21st. And uh, as a consequence of this, uh, Iraq, for example, was one of the countries that hosted one of the meetings that led to the um, formulation of the JCPOA. To me, it's actually an, uh, an agreement that should have remained on. It was working. Um, I uh, had hoped that uh, it would stay on. And uh, to illustrate the uh, relationships between the United States and uh, Iran in the way they impact Iraq, I would say that uh, the main component of it is the politics and the joint interests. For example, between 2014 and 2018, or 19 actually, there was not a single incident between Iranian proxy forces, friends of Iran, or Iranian forces, and the United States, even though they were in close uh, uh, proximity because of the joint fight against, uh, against ISIS, which was prosecuted uh, to great success, uh, although 
I have to hasten to say that the issue is not over yet. We have defeated ISIS territorially, but um, you know, in terms of ideology, in terms of um, dormant um, uh, groups, and there are people who know much more about this than I do in this room. Uh, I think it's 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 still a fight that's ongoing, and it's not over by far. And it's a fight in which we need the collaboration of all our allies and of the coalition that was set up by the United States to fight ISIS. So we're in a situation where there is tension between the United States and Iran. And for most countries, this would be something that is external. Uh, It's something that only the foreign ministry would have to contend with. In our case, it's a lot more complicated because it has internal implications. Uh, I always compare the, uh, you know, struggle to find some sort of historic example that would illustrate the relationship that we have with Iran, with the United States. One example that that would come to mind, uh, and of course the French had this wonderful saying that comparaison est paraison, you know, uh, comparing is not necessarily right, but it it does serve a purpose. Um, Iraq is in a situation of a European country that defeated the, the Nazis after the Second World War could not have been done without the United States, okay? And the United States was a major player, say, in Greece and in France and in other countries. But you had uh, indigenous members of the population uh, who were members of the Communist Party who fought and suffered and paid a heavy price in the fight against the Nazis. Um, And they were allies with the United States until 1945, and then Cold War came in, and so there were tensions. And so we, we do have a number of Iraqis who have sympathies uh, with, uh, with, with Iran. Uh, they're Iraqis. It's their legitimate right. I can't, I mean, right now Iraq is a democracy, so you're free to think what you want. Uh, but they are Iraqis, and, and they have acquired legitimacy, uh, as has Iran in the early days of the fight against ISIS. Uh, my, my first intervention here was in front of the coalition to... Uh, um, to defeat ISIS. Uh, at the time, I think we were some like 60 countries. Now we're about 80. It's a great success uh, and a tribute to the leadership of the United States in this. But early on in June and July and August of 2014, we really stood alone. And the Iraqi army had completely deliquesced. And uh, much worse could have happened had Precisely, the Iranians not stepped in and sent uh, weapons and ammunition um, to the Kurds in the north, to Baghdad in the south, uh, to help stop the uh, onslaught of ISIS. So uh, things have consequences, and the and the and then, of course, there was a famous fatwa by Ayatollah Sistani, without which I think Iraq would have collapsed. It called on uh, volunteers to come in and to stand uh, and to support the Iraq's armed forces to fight against ISIS, and as you know, uh, we prevailed. But these things have consequences. And so now we, we're, we're caught in the middle of, of, the, of this uh, confrontation between the United States and Iran. We're hoping for a reduction of tensions. Through this process, uh, you know, certain escalations took place, including what I'd call the mother of all escalations, which was you know, the, 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 the missile strike in uh, in uh, in Iraq, in at the, near the airport, that killed uh, not only Qasem Soleimani but also a few Iraqis and one very 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 popular 
figure in Iraq who played a real role in the fight against uh, against ISIS, uh, Abu Mahdi Mohandis. Um, and uh, I think there's an article recently that showed that, in fact, his his uh, his his tome is becoming a shrine. He was so popular in Iraq. So these these are th the things we we have to contend with in terms of the politics. Um, the uh, attack against uh, Soleimani was, I would call, what, what I'd call a before and after moment. Uh, things had to reflect what happened. There was a reaction by the government, by the outgoing prime minister. He called for a meeting of parliament, which voted um, to in ask the government to work on the uh, departure of uh, foreign troops from Iraq. Didn't see Americans said it said foreign troops as a sign that for Iraqis. Uh, Iraqi sovereignty is something that is uh, not non-negotiable. And so we are in discussions with uh, the uh, coalition forces in Iraq, including NATO. I don't know what the details of the discussion are. I'm not privy to them. This is done between military to military. But what I do know is that this is not something that will happen overnight. Uh, at some point in the future, I think all the American troops present in Iraq will be the Marines guarding the embassy, and hopefully there will be no need for a large number of them. Uh, hopefully conditions will be very, very placid and quiet there. Uh, in addition to the American officers who will come in on exchange programs with the Iraqi military. Uh, but this is then. So how do we get from here to there? And that's what we're negotiating. Uh, it is possible that um, through the various arrangements that will come out, uh, NATO will play an increasing role, and some of the NATO members who are working on to uh, train and provide uh, capacities to the Iraqi armed forces in their fight against ISIS. I mentioned earlier that we're not done in the fight against ISIS. We um, still need uh, reinforcements in certain capacities, especially in the so-called intelligence surveillance and, and reconnaissance. and. Uh, it is good to remember that uh, in the fight against ISIS, uh, Iraq is really on the front lines. But the truth is, we are fighting on behalf of the whole international community. Uh, to illustrate this, uh, I'll give you a few numbers. Um, they're not precise, but they're quite indicative. Um, the foreign fighters that uh, joined ISIS came from some like 90 different countries. And uh, they are still uh, present. Uh, there are, I think, some like 2,000 of them uh, imprisoned in camps in Kurdish-controlled territory in Syria. They have families, uh, who, some of whom are completely, how shall I put it, uh, indoctrinated um, in uh, camps in Syria in the tens of thousands. So these are issues we need, we need to contend with, and we need to contend with as an international community, and Iraq is 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 ready uh, to do its part, but we don't want to do it uh, alone. I think the international community needs to come in and step up and do what's 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 required. Um, this is on the you know general background of of the of the tensions that we we're dealing with, but uh, in Iraq there is something else that took place over the last few months, which is a popular um, revolt which came about because increasingly and uh, because of a cumulative uh, lack of response 
of the successive Iraqi governments to the needs of the Iraqi government due to corruption, due to inefficiency, due to uh, the fact that we were caught up, and that's a real fact, in, in the war against ISIS. Um, that, the that the requirements and needs of the Iraqi population wasn't responded to properly. And so we've had these protests uh, since uh, October of last year. Um, the response of the government uh, wasn't what I would have wanted it to be. Um, frankly, I'm a little disappointed, as are most members of the government, to, to, to tell you the truth. Uh, and so th these have led to uh, the uh, uh, resignation of the uh, outgoing prime minister um, and the nomination of a new uh, prime minister, a designate, uh, Mohammed Tawfiq Alawi, who this morning actually uh, uh, declared who his, who the members of his uh, cabinet is going to be, and I think at some point uh, in the coming days, Parliament is going to vote on them. Now, uh, this is a what I'd call a make-or-break uh, government for Iraq. What is it going to do? Well. Its main task, I think, uh, its primary task, in a way it resembles the, um, the, the prime minister designate is called Mohammed Tawfiq Alawi, and I think he's a second cousin of Ayad Alawi, Iraq's first prime minister after uh, restoration of Iraqi authority to the, of, of sovereignty to the Iraqi authorities, is to hold elections and to bring about a, uh, an assembly that would uh, revise uh, the government and, and, and provide services. And um, the key element in what uh, he is, uh, his government will have to do is that there is a new electoral system. And um, I want to dwell on this because the importance of this su subject hasn't been dwelled on, I think, sufficiently. When elections took place in 2004, um, I think uh, 2005, first elections. Um, the problem was that the uh, electoral law was not really well adapted to the needs of the Iraqi population. It was a uh, vote that uh, favored identity voting. Um, it also it is a vote that um, made sure that the representation in parliament was actually proportional to participation. So the communities that sat out the, uh, the, uh, the elections were ill-represented in parliament. And this is why uh, the, our first parliament was very skewed. Uh, there were attempts to improve that uh, by, for example, uh, changing the electoral law from having a single district uh, comprising the entire country to smaller districts consisting each of every gov uh, governorate. But still, um, the, the system isn't as ideal as it is. It still favors the political parties and uh, s sometimes the stars within the political parties who would garner, I don't know, several hundred thousands of votes at the expense of the, 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 the mass of other candidates. Uh, and so, as a result, the person in parliament in Iraq doesn't know for sure, like you, like the situation you have in the United States, who voted for them. And by the same token, the Iraqis don't know who it is who represents them in parliament. This change of electoral law will fix that. 
they're going to have much smaller electoral districts, which will open the door to gerrymandering, as I've been told. Uh, but let's get there first. Not only an American. Yeah. But, but it will really be some form of regime change when uh, Iraqis will be able to, to name who represents them in parliament. They can go to him and her, and I emphasize that uh, it is uh, him and her because we have a parliament that has 25% female participation, which is, I think, better than what, until, until recently, better than what you had in the United States. Um, and the same token, uh, so, so they, the parliamentarians will be accountable to 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 the uh, to, to the electors, and so uh, we're hoping that this will lead to a governance that is more responsive to the needs of the people, more responsive to um, uh, the requirements uh, of, of the population, and in fact uh, that would address some of the key concerns that the that the Iraqi population has voiced over the last uh, several months uh, during the protests. The first of which is to um, provide jobs and services. And here I think the Iraqi government has failed miserably. Uh, well, I'll be wrapped on the fingers for saying this. Uh, but one of the reasons was that we were not able to activate the private sector. Most of the employment that was generated in Iraq uh, is due to public employment or military employment. And that isn't right. This is something that will be a burden on the on the on the uh, on the uh, budget. The budget for 2020 is going to be hugely in deficit, precisely because of that, because we weren't able to uh, activate uh, our private sector. And this is something that we can do, and historically we have done. Uh, people don't know this, but before 1958, the Iraqi uh, budget derived essentially not from oil. Most of the benefits of oil actually went to oil companies. That's a different story. Uh, but but was derived from taxes on agricultural exports because Iraq was the breadbasket of the Gulf. And what really kills me is that you know it can very easily become that again. And in fact, uh, there are signs of this. Uh, this year and, and the previous one, we've had a bumper crop if, of, uh, of wheat because we've had uh, a good rainy season to the degree that the local production, uh, in fact, uh, overwhelmed local storage capacity. So what did they do? Uh, they were at the same time taking down those T-walls from Baghdad. And so some very ingenious engineer working for the prime minister had this great idea. He said, let's go and take these T-walls, you know, put them in circles, and use these as makeshift uh, silos to store uh, grain. And that's what they did. It's, I think, a great example of economies of scope uh, that uh, somebody should write a case study on. Um, so services and jobs, but also the other problem that I think uh, has characterized Iraq and that the Iraqi government has tried to do something about, with difficulty though, uh, is corruption. Because it is a drain on resources, is it is a drain on the credibility of the country. Um, and uh, the, we uh, at the embassy were trying to, to promote some ideas that might be helpful in this regard, and I could address that during the question and answer period uh, uh, after this. So, so this is where we are. Uh, we're looking forward to uh, the future. Uh, like I said, we have a new cabinet that's been nominated. 
Um, it's mostly credible people. Actually, I am say mostly because some of them I don't know, so I can't judge. But of the people I know, the, these, are, these are credible people. Uh, the oil minister, the uh, foreign minister is a colleague of mine. Uh, the labor minister was our uh, uh, former ambassador to, uh, um, to Norway. And for a brief period, my boss is head of the America's department. Um, and uh, it it has uh, a significant uh, you know female representation. I, I actually I'd like to take advantage of this to say that Iraq was in fact on the forefront of women's empowerment in the in the Middle East. Uh, you mentioned uh, Dr. Ismail Haqqi. Uh, he is not as uh, well known in Iraq as his sister uh, because uh, she was the first judge, female judge in the Arab world. Um, so uh, these are things that actually we, we, we take pride in. Um, so the way forward, well, um, we have defeated ISIS territorially. I don't want to say that we've defeated them entirely. We still have a ways to go to ensure that they are not, no longer resurgent. But I think we should start working on how to rebuild Iraq, how to reconstruct after the, uh, the disaster of ISIS, after the disaster of the mismanagement and corruption of the last 15 years. And my message to people in Washington is that we would like, and I know that there are a number of people here who represent companies and technologies that would be very, very useful to employ in Iraq. We would like the United States to help us rebuild Iraq in the way it helped us defeat ISIS. Um, and uh, there are examples to look at in the past. People don't know this. Uh, and I never cease to say it, but the first industrial development program made up for Iraq was uh, uh, written by Arthur D. Little in uh, Acorn Park, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. So there's something to build on, uh, and maybe with your help, we'll do something that will translate into something very, very concrete to the benefit of the United States and Iraq and the region. Thank you. Yes. Uh, okay. Colonel DeRoche. <clears throat> Thank you for the introduction. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I apologize to those of you who are expecting to see John Duke Anthony here, that big sizzling red-hot T-bone <laughs> of erudition, and instead find this microwave soy patty in front of you. But <laughs> I shall endeavor to be diplomatic, dispassionate, and declamatory uh, in my remarks. Um, this is uh, Ash Wednesday, the first day of Lent, the Christian season of abstinence and reflection. And so I would like to um, begin with three questions that I think uh, we would do well to uh, reflect on. The first one is, what does the United States owe Iraq? The second question is, what does Iraq owe the United States? And then the third question, which is a complex one, is, is Iraq sovereign, and are there people in the world who really want Iraq to be sovereign? Um, I will be brief in a couple of my observations. The first one is I want to speak briefly about the role of international law. The United States has two great ways to confuse its partners, 
particularly, and its adversaries. One is when we say we're going to do something and do not do it. But if we really want to mess people up, we say we're going to do something and then we do it. Uh, I can, that really causes trouble. Nobody can handle that. Um, the ambassador's remark on the strategic blunder of the 1991 uh, failure to move on to Baghdad and overthrow Saddam Hussein, uh, I have heard in military fora, diplomatic fora, and universities for 20 years now. I remember Kanan Makia in 1995 at the University of London, known to most of you as Samir al-Khalil, um, saying, that was a huge mistake, the Americans should have overthrown Saddam, and then we'll get rid of the imperialists. Um, but if you speak to 100 college students, uh, members of the Council of Foreign Relations, uh, the bien pesant say, what should American foreign policy be based on? They will all say, uh, probably about 96% of them will say, international law as codified in the relevant uh, resolutions of the United Nations. And the fact that the United States complied with that in 1991 just to expel forces from Kuwait and not move onward for regime change, that really threw people for a loop. Uh, when you see the opposite going on with the extension of United Nations resolutions as with the uh, overthrow of Muammar Gaddafi or with the overthrow of Saddam Hussein, then people say, oh my God, what are you doing? They forget the arguments made in 1991. And so that's something I think to, to bear in mind. It's a problem for all of us, but it's particularly a problem for um, uh, a, uh, uh, Iraq because Iraq has suffered from both uh, swings of the pendulum. Sovereignty, according to Max Weber, um, I have a law on sovereignty which holds that the desirability of living in a country is inversely proportionate to the number of times that country's leaders invoke their sovereignty. Basically, um, you don't see the president of France say, we are a sovereign nation. That very rarely happens. Uh, you do see it from a number of countries that our president has rather infelicitously characterized with a term that I will not use in mixed company. Um, uh, but sovereignty is a real thing. Max Weber famously described it as uh, a, a nation is sovereign when the government has a monopoly on the legitimate use of force within its borders. And I think that by that definition, Iraq is not a sovereign nation. And so the question is, why is it not sovereign? And who wants it to be sovereign? And who does not want it to be sovereign? Um, I should point out at this point that until three weeks ago, the man who was uh, the presumptive nominee the man who was the presumptive nominee of a major political party until three weeks ago has called for the partition of Iraq. Basically said, a pox upon you all. There are three groups here. Give, divide the country into threes and give it to them. There is no indication in the public record that he has renounced those views or modified those views. So uh, I think we have to consider that this is uh, a mainstream view in American political thought and that uh, the renunciation of Iraqi sovereignty, basically saying this is too hard, remains uh, a viable proposition within at least one element of the American foreign policy elite. Now, the United States has, uh, after the invasion of Saddam Hussein, and of course that is the failure that is an orphan, um, success has a thousand fathers, I can tell you that I've had a number of um, prominent people who were involved in the decision at the Defense and State Department speak to some of my groups, and none of them claims any input of or advanced knowledge of 
Paul Bremer's uh, debathification of the Iraqi armed forces. And I'm talking fairly senior leaders in the Department of Defense. They all say they were surprised by that. So it's pretty clear that is the failure that is an orphan. Um, uh, but the United States has made numerous mistakes along the way, uh, uh, has spent billions of dollars, has lost a considerable amount of life, although the uh, American blood toll is, is dwarfed by the Iraqi blood toll. But it's worth noting that after all of that, in 2011, the United States did leave Iraq. It did leave Iraq. So there is at least a track record of some respect for Iraqi sovereignty, albeit left with uh, the concept that there was a model government, or at least a government that was sustainable, and security forces that were sustainable in its wake. Um, of course, the rise of Daesh showed that uh, these institutions had been hollowed out. Uh, literally, the Minister of Defense was being uh, dismissed uh, as the last American armored vehicle left Iraq uh, in 2011. And uh, I have long argued that the rise of Daesh reflects less uh, military prowess on Daesh's behalf rather than the ineptitude of the security forces it faced, particularly in Mosul, which was uh, not, a not a security force that was uh, organized to secure terrain, but rather to, um, it was viewed as a foreign army of occupation in there. So the question is, what are America's interests and what are the interests of the other countries that are involved in that? I would argue that the United States has shown that it is willing to compromise on its interests by its departure from the country by its significant investment in Iraqi reconstruction, uh, that we've done that before, and that we came back uh, to deal with Daesh in 2014. So what are Iran's interests? Well, the first one, and this is not spoken of a lot, often enough, I think, is economic. Look, Iran is a country that has a significant portion of its foreign export going to Iraq. Uh, its energy, in particular, production of electricity, uh, the balance of payment is grossly distorted in the favor of Iran. And Iran would suffer if Iraq were able to make sovereign economic decisions. There, would, there is to be expected a great amount of trade across the border because they are adjacent, as the ambassador remarked, just as we expect a great amount of trade between the United States and Canada, the United States and Mexico. But at the end of the day, the system that is being fostered by Iraq based in large part on the fact that it, exert, that it is able to violate Iranian sovereignty and perhaps uh, force decisions to be made on grounds other than strictly economic. This means that Iraq is at danger of becoming the economic hinterland of the Iranian regime. Related to this is the fact that uh, the, Iranian, the Iranian economy, which is heavily sanctioned, which is contracted uh, by probably 4% in the last year, uh, has come to rely on the Iraq as a means to evade sanctions. And I think the president's uh, remarks that he would impose sanctions on Iraq if United States forces had to leave Iraq uh, at the time of the uh, parliamentary vote, which is, of course, disputed and probably illegitimate. But I don't think that was as is commonly um, and easily portrayed here, a fit of peak, and I, I understand it's hard to <laughs> disaggregate that. I think what it was was rather an analysis that if Iraq, if the United States leaves and Iraq just becomes subject to um, violation of sovereignty by Iranian forces, that will be used to evade sanctions. And so, um, as it's brought into the Iranian economic sphere, so will uh, it be subject to Iranian economic sanctions. 
That's not a popular view in Washington. It's not common for people who speak at fora such as this to give credit for analysis to the president. But I think, honestly, that's where he's coming from, uh, if, if you look at his talks on this. And then the third one is, of course, uh, Iran, Iran's ability to extend the battlefield against its adversaries by using uh, militia in Iraq who I would argue have at least dual loyalty and perhaps a primary loyalty to Iran rather than to Iraq. Now, I'm not, I'm speaking here of the popular mobilization forces, the Heshta Shabi. It's worth noting that not all of the popular mobilization forces fall into this, but there's certainly some of them, and we've seen the transfer of um, large weapons, of missiles. Uh, these can be used to open up a new front uh, threat against Saudi Arabia and uh, the GCC states from the north. Uh, and this is, this is of strategic value to Iran. And so I, I don't think it would be logical to expect Iran to do this. Now, finally, I'm going to close up with two subjects that have been raised here. The first is the death of Soleimani, and the second is uh, reconstruction. Uh, the death of Soleimani was a significant blow in the long war between the United States and Iran. And I would argue that this has been a long, undeclared uh, war that sometimes bubbles, sometimes simmers, uh, but it's always been there. I would argue, though, far more important for uh, the United States and for Iraq was not the death of Qasem Soleimani, who at the end of the day, while perhaps an effective leader, was a leader in an organization whose strategy, whose tactics, whose goals, whose resources are not going to change because of one man. The deputy moves up, may do the job less effectively, but he's going to try and do the same job. More significant was the death of Abdul Mahdi al-Muhandis, who was the leader of what I would argue was an Iranian-directed militia that was at least that had managed to embed itself into the Iraqi state that was funded to parts. He was the deputy commander of the Heshta Shabi. Um, the fact that while he is buried in Iraq, that he was brought, his corpse was brought to Iran and was displayed side by side along with um, Qasem Soleimani at the mass rallies in Tehran, I think speaks volumes. Um, and I think that his death sort of changed the ground rules, which in the past in, for Iranian proxies, be they Hezbollah in Lebanon, had been if you managed to embed yourself into the infrastructure of the sovereign state, you were immune from retaliation. So I think that by dispelling that, that um, although a violation of Iraqi sovereignty by the United States, I think that that actually will help ultimately to restore sovereignty by countering this Iranian effort to infiltrate proxies. And finally on reconstruction. Reconstruction is tough, reconstruction is difficult, reconstruction is expensive. And I believe that until we see true sovereignty in Iraq, it will be very, very hard to make the case that, uh, particularly in this era where we have bridges falling down in the last 10 years in Minneapolis and in Atlanta, highway bridges just collapsing, to pay a second time, rightly or wrongly, I think the American perception is that we've already paid for reconstruction in Iraq once, we will not do it a second time, particularly if this just goes to benefit Iran, you know, if we subsidize their uh, thing of sovereignty. So I'm going to follow with the same questions I asked and hopefully they'll be asked here. What does the United States own in Iraq? Iraq was a functioning state prior to the invasion. It was functioning perhaps better than it was in 2006, although it's, it still has come a long way and it is functioning now. What does Iraq owe the United States? And what is the true nature of sovereignty? How will these affect those two debts? And with that, I uh, welcome your uh, questions and appreciate your patience. David. Thank you. David. This mic works. Uh, David, thank you so much for, for your commentary. Um, in keeping with our educational mission, 
uh, here at the National Council. Um, Mr. Ambassador, please feel free to, to respond, to, to comment, to uh, correct the record, um, uh, and, and let us know your thoughts on some of the points that uh, Colonel DeRoche raised. Wherever you'd like. Maybe from here? Or? Uh, you can go up there. Sure. Okay. Colonel, thank you so much. Comments. Um, I have a few things to say about that, <laughs> and I, I agree with some of the stuff you said. But I also disagree with much of the stuff you said. So on on what happened in 1991, what I really and I'm using the word advisedly, what I begrudge the United States for, is that they empowered Saddam to take uh, to take on the the insurgency. They allowed him to use his helicopters. Admittedly, he asked uh, General Schwarzkopf to use his helicopters to, to move his officials around, but in fact, he used them to, 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 to bomb and to, and to quell the uprising. That's one thing. The other thing is that, uh, unbeknownst to a lot of people, uh, the uh, U.S. military wasn't able to prevent uh, a whole division of Iraqi Republican Guards from escaping from Kuwait and going on to, to, um, to, to quell them. This is what I really begrudge the United States for. And that led to uh, Saddam taking power. That led to then 10 years of sanctions on the Iraqi population. This is one of the reasons why actually Iraqis are viscerally opposed to sanctions on, on anybody, on economic, because they don't work. Not only do, do they not work, they actually backfire, and they make the people who shouldn't pay for it pay for it. In Iraq, for example, during the, the sanctions regime of, uh, from 1991 onwards, um, there were certain years uh, before the Oil for Food program was adopted where you could see visibly the stunting of children. I mean, you could see the difference between children who were one or two years old before the Oil for Food program was, 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 was implemented and, uh, and they had at least a, a sufficient, uh, you know, calorie count, and you know, Dr. Huckley can comment on that. He's a medical doctor, and he knows more about this than I do. So this is one. This is the. the it's it's not. I mean, uh, Iraqis would wouldn't have wanted the Americans to go to Baghdad all the way to uh, to uh, to get rid of Saddam. Remember the time Kanan Makia, whom you mentioned, Colonel, wrote an op-ed uh, in the in the in the New York Times, uh, published in March of 1991. The title that he chose was "A Peaceful Democratic Iraq." Uh, is possible. The New York Times editors changed it. They wow. made it uh, do it right, march to Baghdad. Well, you know, we didn't want you to march, but just wanted you <laughs> not to empower Saddam. Um, on sovereignty, so sovereignty is not black and white. Uh, Countries interact. Okay. Our neighboring countries, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, to a large degree have influence in Iraq, just as the United States, I think, has influence in Canada or in Mexico. Uh, but do they have authority? That's the line that should not be crossed. And I would argue that Iran, nor Saudi Arabia, nor Turkey, nor, any, nor even the United States, has authority in Iraq. And decisions that come out of the Iraqi government are the Iraqi governments. And I can give you examples 
of where Iraq took decisions that were not popular uh, in Washington. I can give you examples of decisions that were taken by the Iraqi government that were not popular in Tehran. Um, so that's one thing. Um, the other thing is uh, what happened in Baghdad airport. So uh, Abu Mahdi Mohandis was killed, but now he is a mythic figure uh, that will be talked about centuries from now. If you want to reduce his influence, that is not the way to do it. And Iraq, in any case, is a post-conflict country. And so it's not easy to ensure uh, government control over weapons. Even in the United States, in your history, if you look at the, uh, uh, your civil war, most of the outlaws that you had out west were people who were former rebel soldiers. Okay. In, in France, after the First World War, after the decommissioning of, of, of soldiers, most of the uh, uh, bands of, 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 of criminals were actually decommissioned soldiers. One country that really was extremely successful in the uh, transition from a conflict situation to a post-conflict situation, to my mind, is the United States after World War II. And you did that with tricks, policies, that I would like to see the United States tell Iraq about, share with us. Won't cost you much, but it will be a priceless gift. One is the GI Bill. What it did is it took this fighting force and transformed it into the most potent, powerful engine of economic growth. This is what we'd like to do. Now, for example, the French have something that are, they're trying to implement in the, in the south of Iraq with <coughs> some of the members of the army and the, and the, uh, and the, um, and the popular mobilizations with uh, teaching them uh, vocational training. Uh, but this is something that I think where we could greatly benefit from, from the example of the United States. And when I talk about uh, you know, reconstruction, uh, one example that comes to mind is what happened here in the United States after the Second World War, where this entrepreneur, Mr. Levitt, came in and provided cheap but decent housing to the returning GIs. There's a huge uh, housing shortage in Iraq. I think we could greatly benefit from the kinds of expertise and know-how that are available in the United States. And there are people in this room, I won't point my finger at them, who have come to my office to show me solutions where we could provide decent housing to uh, people in Iraq uh, that would take, take the edge of the, of the problems that youth faces. One thing I did not address, and I'd like to, I'd like to, to, to talk about it, um, because it is uh, really the elephant in the room that nobody talks about. It's our youth bulge. Most of the people in the protest movement are people who are in their late teens, early 20s. These are people who don't remember Saddam Hussein, but these are people who cannot live a life. The general uh, 
statement that they make out when, uh, make when they when they when, is that we want a country. Well, they feel that they really don't have a country in which to have a, a real life. You know, Iraq is a very conservative country socially. So uh, it's you know unless they you know find the resources uh, to marry and to set up a household, they'll be frustrated. And this is a problem that is not germane only to Iraq. You feel, you find it all across the Middle East. Um, and 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 in developing countries, uh, these are the kinds of things that we look to our friends and partners uh, to resolve. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Um, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, I just want to remind you uh, again uh, during our discussion and question and answer uh, sessions, um, please uh, please do write on note cards. We have uh, our staff and volunteers and ushers. We have a lot of questions um, to get to. You. We have limited time. Um, so uh, if you just want to, thanks, Michael, just raise your hand. Um, we'll also have the audio um, of this available on the Council's website, and that's at www.ncusar.org, and that'll be sometime this afternoon. Uh, I know some folks have asked me, uh, can we get the video or audio, can we share it? Absolutely. Um, more than happy to get that to you. We'll, we'll try to post it on our, on our website. Um, I have a few questions um, that, have, that have come in for, for Mr. Ambassador, and of course, Dave, you're, you're most welcome to, 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 to jump in at, uh, at any time. Um, Mr. Ambassador, um, first question uh, that we have, and, and Dave, how can the GCC countries, your neighbors in the region, uh, what role can they play in reducing the tensions with Iran, if any? Uh, second, I'm going to do three questions at once and then let the ambassador and, and, and David respond. That way we can try to get to all the questions that we have up here. Um, second question, how is Iraq dealing with the coronavirus situation? Uh, and the third question, um, can, you, can you update us on the U.S.-Iraqi security cooperation when it, against ISIS and is it continuing? So I'll take those three uh, first and then we'll get into the other questions. Mr. Ambassador, Dave, feel free to take anyone. Well, I'll just make one brief point about the GCC in Iraq. Geography is immutable. Um, you, you have neighbors. You can either get along with them or you can't get along with them. And I think it's in the interest of the GCC to get along with Iraq. Um, they may, the terms of it may vary, but uh, just as, you know, we have to get along with Mexico. Um, I, was, I was at the U.S.-Mexican border last week. By the way, if you cross from Tijuana and San Diego by foot, the first thing you see in the United States is a Taco Bell. We, we wonder why we have problems with this country. Um, <laughs> but uh, 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 recognize the geography and shape your, shape your policy accordingly. Uh, thank you. Uh, the other two, um, coronavirus and uh, uh, security cooperation. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, any thoughts on that? I know you've already talked about it. but. On the GCC, I think that the main point is to engage. You know, for a very long time, uh, the GCC was completely absent uh, from Iraq, uh, as if, you know, we didn't exist. And in fact, uh, the exports from GCC countries to Iraq in the mid-2000s were mostly, uh, you know, foreign fighters who joined al-Qaeda. Um, and we could have done without those, trust me. Uh, but but now there's there's actually a, a new outlook, and and we're eager to um, start it off with uh, with um, Haider Abadi. I remember actually I I uh, at a conference in Paris in 2014, uh, 15, 14, 15. Um, 
the the uh, uh, Saudi foreign minister was there, and the the prime minister was eager to talk to him, but uh, my colleagues were reluctant to act because they thought they were concerned that he might res not respond favorably. So I actually, I mean, did something that I shouldn't have, maybe shouldn't have done without asking for permission. I crossed the room and went and actually asked for a meeting, and it was very cordial. And at the end of it, they exchanged phone numbers, which I think was, was great. Later on, um, at the uh, last, uh, uh, I think, uh, conference uh, on, on Daesh, the same person, uh, the same person, um, uh, Adel Jubeir was there with uh, my friend Muhammad Al Hakim, foreign minister, and we were leaving. And Adel Jubeir actually ran behind, ran after Muhammad Al Hakim for them to sit down. So there's been there's been a hell of a change in the in the in the relationships. Uh, my my point, I don't know if I'm. This is always an example I make. Uh, Forgive me if I, if, I, if I indulge me with this. To me, the only model of foreign policy that Iraq can have is that of Switzerland. Uh, people ask me why. Well, th the reason is that Switzerland is, like Iraq, a country that sits astride divisions, linguistic, uh, religious, ethnic, so on and so forth. And uh, these divisions you find in the country itself. And so the only policy that you can have is one of proactive uh, neutrality. We have good relations with all of your neighbors. And so we extend our hand to the Saudis, to the Iranians, to the, uh, to the Turks. And uh, come, come to think of it, you know, if our plans to develop an, a, tra a, a transportation infrastructure are, are developed, I think Iraq will be, again, a, you know, sort of a bridge between all of these regions. Um, but it'll take some investment and some 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 effort. Um, coronavirus. I know that seems to be. We are really concerned. Iran. We are really concerned by that. This is one of the reasons why they've put a stop to uh, travel between Iraq and Iran. Uh, you know the the uh, uh, traffic of people, not traffic, not the uh, travel of people between Iran and, and Iraq is is quite intense. We have, you know, several million Iranians coming in for religious um, duties uh, into Iraq. We have the same number, roughly, of Iraqis coming into Iran, and they engage into activities that are communal. So they're the kinds of things that would help uh, a virus transmit, um, you know, more readily. So um, the Iraqi health ministry has taken steps to curtail travel. I think in certain governorates also they've uh, actually stopped uh, or uh, canceled um, school sessions. Um, it's it's a it's a serious issue. We've had we've had a number of cases, including one or two deaths. Super, um, Mr. Ambassador. I have we're getting some wonderful questions in here that really provoke a lot of um, uh, thought and, and for discussion. Uh, this one is for the ambassador. Uh, what discussions are you having with your U.S. counterparts at all? about making uh, waiver sanctions, U.S. sanctions on Iran more lasting. Uh, another question or comment and question. Emotions are powerful in politics. We've seen Iraq uh, move towards anger towards both Iran and the United States. Will Iran forgive America? Will Iraqis forgive America for its mistakes? Will they support a government that sees itself as an ally? And finally, President Trump likes dramatic diplomacy. What will determine whether or not a 
quote, Kissinger moment, unquote, can take place in U.S.-Iranian relations? Any other questions? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what was the first one? Uh, so the first uh, sure. One no, the first one was, uh, let's talk, what is the, um, the on the waiver? Uh, so the waiver? On, 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 the, on the waivers. So uh, currently, uh, Iraq um, requires uh, imports a significant amount of gas from Iran, as well as a significant amount of electricity. Uh, because we haven't been able to uh, develop our uh, production capacity and our transmission capacity properly. Uh, that's a mistake. We should have done better. Uh, but the point that I'd like to make is that we actually flare more gas out of the province of Basra than we import gas from Iran. And, and that's, uh, I think, a, a sin, actually. Um, I mean, I believe that, you know, climate change is a real issue and that we have to use um, uh, hydrocarbons uh, judiciously. And so flaring is, is a complete waste and uh, detrimental to the planet. And to, So we have some projects ongoing uh, that involve a number of American firms, uh, not only American firms, but other firms, uh, trying to capture that flared gas that would uh, help Iraq ensure um, um, its own uh, energy uh, self-sufficiency. Um, this is one way that the, uh, uh, that the United States has of trying to say, you know, wean yourself off Iran. Well, you know, we would like uh, to actually not waste our gas, first and foremost, and so we are engaged in, in, the, in, these, in, these, uh, in these activities. Uh, periodically, there is a review of uh, the policies of, the, of uh, the Iraqi state in terms of how it's proceeding to ensure that, to capture its own gas and not to waste it, um, and to di diversify its, uh, its energy resources. Um, one thing to be mentioned is that, for example, we could benefit from a uh, consolidated grid of uh, electrical networks across the Middle East. For example, Jordan has an overcapacity, um, uh, uh, which we could benefit from. Uh, if we could, for example, uh, increase or link our grid to Turkey and to Saudi Arabia, uh, we could make uh, better use of these consolidated resources. The peak uh, use of uh, electricity in Turkey is uh, during winter because it's cold up there. The peak use of electricity in Saudi Arabia is in summer because it's really hot up there. So there is real economic sense to be made out of uh, consolidating all this together. So we're making progress in this. The United States says that it wants to see us taking steps towards um, um, energy independence, which we're doing. Uh, typically, the sanction waivers exemptions have been uh, 90 days, 120 days. Uh, this time around, it's been only 45. That's a real short period, but I think it was a sign uh, to the Prime Minister to say, look, we're giving you the benefit of the doubt. I hope that the next round they will uh, go back to uh, our uh, regular modus vivendi and extend it to um, a little longer. The current planning of the Iraqi government is to uh, work uh, Hard actually on this, and but it can be done overnight. It'll require you know two, three, four years. I don't know. Egypt actually is one country that was able to do that, and they moved from 
not being uh, self-sufficient uh, in, in gas to being entirely self-sufficient and, in fact, of exporting within three years. Uh, the, the second question, uh, Mr. Ambassador, was uh, what will determine uh, whether or not there is a Kissinger moment um, to take place in U.S.-Iranian relations? What, what can the U.S., what should the U.S. do? What can, what can Iraq do? Well, that's a question I think you should address to Mr. Pompeo. Thank you. <laughs> He's today's Kissinger. Um, will, this is a very emotional, uh, the, will Iraqis forgive America for its mistakes? Will they support a government that sees itself as an ally? Um, and tell us about the Kurdish situation. There will be some Iraqis who will never forgive the United States. I know people whose sons were killed uh, by mistake by United States troops. Um, that's part of history. Um, there are some Americans who will never forgive Iraq for their losses. Um, that's something we have to take into account and acknowledge and actually mourn uh, because these were victims. These people are victims. Um, there is a wonderful event taking place in May, uh, which is a 5K run for Iraqi children that is organized by uh, the widows of, uh, and, and mothers of, Iraqi, of American servicemen who died in Iraq. I think it's through activities like this that we can transcend uh, all these you know, somber feelings and reach for something brighter. Uh, focus on children is always wonderful. I uh, uh, recently, I think the president or tweeted a picture of him holding a book on this wonderful young Iraqi girl who was entirely burnt and then who was adopted by this wonderful lady from uh, Ohio, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Um, who brought her over here and uh, gave her treatment and sort of co-adopted her. So she still has two mothers, an Iraqi mother and an American mother. And by God, she's dynamite. I mean, she's, I think, going to be valedictorian of her high school. She's going to, uh, uh, at some point, maybe run for office. She still bears traces of, 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 of her suffering, but she's really beautiful and smart, and uh, I think looking at her, I think we can find examples of what it is we can focus on to go beyond uh, these, you know, mutual recommendations that are not idle, that they have, you know, real reasons. Uh, there is real reason to mourn, but hopefully, say hopefully, we can dig deep and find more reasons to hope. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Um, another question here, um, Al-Sadr, who is Muqtada Al-Sadr? And tell us about the protests against corruption and the blue hats. Um, second question was, how will the Kurds come out of this recent election reshuffling of government ministries and their influence? And finally, um, is the Trump administration preparing punitive action against Iraq to deter the expulsion of US troops? Did the U.S. threaten the Iraqi Prime Minister with the closing of Iraq's central bank accounts through the Federal Reserve in New York City? 
Well, that's a little extreme, isn't it? Um, yeah. Okay, so on, on Muqtada Sadr, Muqtada Sadr comes from one of the most prominent Iraqi families, clerical and political. In fact, uh, just a few days ago, I stumbled across a uh, um, letter signed by uh, Muhammad al-Sadr, who was one of our first uh, prime ministers, I think 1920s or 30s, uh, which I bought and sent to my colleague, who is a cousin of Muqtada's, Sayyid Muqtada, who is our, and he's our current ambassador to, uh, uh, to the UK. Uh, he was really pleased by it. But I, don't, I told him, don't tell Sayyid Muqtada that I sent it to you. Muqtada um, uh, Sadr is one of the most, uh, he's charismatic. He has a presence in, in, the, uh, in, in, in Iraq. He has uh, impact on the ground. He has a serious following. And he is one of the most uh, important political players in Iraq. Um, so for the time being, in, in, in the early phases of the protests, he was very much in support of the other, other protests. And in fact, his followers um, promoted the protests. Um, right now, more broadly, there is some sort of tension between the nominated prime minister who wants to come in and with a cabinet of people who are chosen as individuals uh, and to get the approval of the parties who make up parliament. Um, and uh, Sayyid Muqtada Sadr has a large uh, group of uh, people in parliament. In fact, his coalition was the number one uh, seat-getter in the, in the current parliament. So you have this tension between this prime minister who wants to uh, change things and uh, bring in uh, a new hand, if you will, uh, of people who are still representative of the general population but chosen on their individual qualifications and to get the approval of the uh, political parties who have been elected into parliament. There's a tension there. Uh, it'll come to a fore in, in a f to the fore in, in a few days. I, I honestly can't guess at the outcome, okay? okay. But I uh, do hope that people will act responsibly and, and see whether they want, and act their conscience and uh, think of the interest of the country. Yes, a question about the Kurds in, in Kurdistan. Um, so that, 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 that falls in the same category, you know, the, uh, the uh, uh, Kurdish parties are very, very present. They're well organized. Um, and they also fall into this category of wanting to have, uh, you know, party representation versus individual representation. Uh, but uh, overall, I think there is going to be discussions on how the uh, oil budget is going to be distributed. Um, there is an inequality in, the, in this whole affair, is that the uh, province that feeds Iraq in fact, is Basra. Uh, most of our revenue comes is oil derived, and Basra is the, you know, uh, the 800-pound gorilla of uh, oil production in Iraq. And so, um, this is something that will have to be negotiated. Super. Uh, last uh, three questions: um, What could cause tensions to escalate between the United States, Iraq, and Iran, and the and the region? Um, uh, how how do you envision uh, 
the U.S. and Iraqi military cooperation post-Soleimani? Uh, and finally, uh, is it realistic that the PMF uh, will eventually be embedded with the National Army? Um, I'll start with the last one. Uh, they actually are part of the uh, uh, formal structure of, Iraqis, of Iraq's armed forces. For one thing, they receive salaries from the state. They, uh, in fact, they are under the orders of the uh, Commander-in-Chief of Iraq Arms Forces, and that's the Prime Minister. Um, in a sense, ideally, they would, you know, become some sort of, you know, National Guard. Um, to my mind, uh, other than the, the, the fact that there's a, a historic uh, precedent to this, they're a bit like, you know, like the Peshmerga in a way. Um, and so, I think in, in, in the long in the long in the long run, there is good reason to believe that these structures will be adopted and and the uh, institutions of the popular mobilizations will be under the and well coordinated coordinated with the other components of of Iraq's armed forces. Uh, and that the uh, second to last question, uh, Mr. Ambassador. Um, U.S. and Iraqi military cooperation post Soleimani. I think you've talked a little bit about it, uh, and you well, eventually see her. Well, you know, military cooperation. We should have military co just to co cooperate military. Maybe that's a good thing to sort of strengthen ties uh, between between countries. Uh, but uh, you know, we started cooperating militarily again in 2014 for a purpose, which was to defeat ISIS, and that is still the prevailing reason. And uh, so long as it, we, we haven't put this issue to rest finally, there will still be a need to cooperate. And I think we have had uh, recently some operations that took place just a few days ago where, um, where uh, joint action was taken to capture some uh, ISIS uh, elements. Terrific. Uh, finally, uh, Mr. Ambassador, what could cause tensions to, to escalate? Um, between the U.S., Iran, and Iraq, um, and the region. Um, they talk about Iran now having uh, a pathway to the Mediterranean um, through Syria. Uh, how, how, how does this all square in the long run? I mean, what, what, what's gonna what do you think is going to happen? What, what do we need to, to brace ourselves for, if anything? I'd rather not. I'd rather find the, uh, pursue the alternative. You know, I think people should talk. I think there is uh, room for joint uh, uh, common interests. You know, people talked about coronavirus. That's one hell of a good reason to work together, yeah. you know. Another thing, of course, this is my main point of contention with the Trump administration, is, is climate change. Uh, climate change is real in our part of the world. Uh, recently, the, um, the New York Times, uh, and that's not fake news, it's actually scientifically viable, they published uh, pictures of um, uh, where uh, sea level would be uh, in not a too long a period from now, 2030 or 2050. And uh, for the first time, I saw them include Basra. And uh, these calculations were readjusted. Uh, and as a result, the newer calculations showed that the city of Basra proper would be covered in water, um, not to mention Kuwait, not to mention Dubai, and not to many. So there are real reasons for us to, to work together um, to uh, avert what 
would be terrible for all of us. Wonderful. Mr. Ambassador, we just would like to take this opportunity to thank you again for, for bringing a, 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 a fantastic discussion uh, together here. Uh, we, we thank you for your time. Uh, we hope that you will uh, come again in, in six months and uh, we can talk about the future and, and progress and great things that are going to happen. Um, and uh, I just want to thank uh, all of you, ladies and gentlemen, for making the time and taking the time out of your schedule to come. And of course, David, contrarian, uh, thank you for thank you for being here thank and being a good sport as you always are. Um, and uh, I just just want to say thank you. Um, have a great day. Thank you.